Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. My name is Peter T. Coleman, and I'm coming to you from the studios of WKCR at Columbia University. The show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. My name is Meredith Smith, and I'm the host of today's show, and I'm very excited to talk today about Islam and religious literacy. I have a special guest here in the studio with me at WKCR, Professor Hussein Rashid. Welcome, Professor Rashid. Thank you for having me on. Hussein Rashid has on his um, website, I found this little bio that says, I am an American, a Muslim, an academic, a believer. I believe the only way to learn is to teach. As a speaker and writer, I hope to work with you and your community. So welcome. Professor Hussein Rashid teaches here at Columbia at Barnard, and he also has a variety of activities he's engaged in. He founded a consultancy that's called Islamicate, known as L3C. It's a consultancy that focuses on religious literacy and cultural competency. Professor Rashid works with a variety of NGOs, foundations, nonprofits, and governmental agencies for content expertise on religion broadly with a specialization on Islam. His work includes exploring theology, the interaction between culture and religion, and the role of the arts in conflict mediation. He has taught at other universities around the New York City area and brings a background in Middle Eastern studies from Columbia University and a master's in theological studies focusing on Islam with an MA and PhD in Near Eastern languages and cultures, focusing on South and Central Asia from Harvard University. He is... um, also a faculty member and has taught at Hofstra University, Fordham University, Iona College, and um, Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, among um, a couple others. And his research focuses on Muslims and American popular culture. He writes and speaks about music, comics, movies, and the blogistan. He also has a background in South and Central Asian studies, which I mentioned, and a a deep interest in Shia uh, justice theology. He has published widely on uh, academic works uh, on Muslims in American popular culture, Malcolm X, among other topics, including Muslims in film and American Muslim spaces of worship. Current project focuses on the role of technology in teaching religion, which I hope to talk more about. And he holds current fellowships, um, uh, think tanks, and also the Truman National Security Project. He is on the advisory boards of a number of different NGOs and also including the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Art. There's an extensive list of other accomplishments and um, publications that I encourage you all to to look at on his website as well. And um, just one other mention is how he's on the editorial board of Religious Dispatches, the Islamic Monthly, Cyber Orient, and... uh, um, writes for and talks on a number of mainstream media sources. So thank you so much for being in the studio with me and joining on the show. Thank you for having me on. Um, 
for our conversation, I would love to start, Professor Rashid, and hear about what your faith means to you. So I grew up in New York, um, and perhaps the time where most people recognize it for the Fort Apache, the Bronx, and the Warriors, sort of its uh, run-down state. Uh, and I grew up in a New York where people didn't really question me about my religion. That really wasn't the thing we were all worried about. Uh, there were so many other things going on in the city that we didn't talk much about it. And I found that as I grew to be a teenager, uh, I think like most teenagers, I rejected everything my parents taught me, uh, including religion, and uh, really didn't consider myself religious for uh, quite some time, actually until I came to college. And I discovered or rediscovered or consciously took on my faith again uh, in college, in part because I had a wonderful uh, professor in the humanities here at Columbia, Peter On, who was able to articulate to me intellectually what it is my parents had been trying to instill in me since I was a young child. And I was able to explore my faith in a way that made sense for me. But what happened in those intervening years w between when I didn't consider myself a believer and I took that faith on for myself is that I became really aware of racial politics. My high school had a lot of racial politics and so I became really conscious of questions of racial justice in America. And I carried those questions with me um, into my exploration of faith where questions of justice and God's justice and our ability to create justice in the world uh, were really driving forces in my understanding of how I would view uh, my religion and my religious practice and my engagement with it in the world. So the result of that is that now when I try to think about how I engage with my faith, it's not just a personal belief, but it is a set of public actions to build stronger, healthier communities, whether that is on interfaith lines, which is where I spend most of my time, um, or thinking about how we can lend a moral voice to uh, a Muslim moral voice to questions of what's happening in North Dakota and the pipeline, or around Black Lives Matter, or the question of reparations. Um, that these become important to my worldview as well. And to to visit as, uh, your faith a second um, more, can you tell me how you interpret it in your life today? Yeah, I mean, I think my my faith personally is very important to me in terms of um, how I view the world. Again, not only in terms of sort of these larger corporate actions. Um, or thinking about justice in society, uh, but thinking also as well is what does it mean to interact with other people? Um, that I do take the, the quote that you read out, I do take that very seriously, is that there's a sense that, okay, you have a PhD, what else is there for you to learn? But, you know, my faith tells me that there's always more to learn because God is always, God has more knowledge than we can ever comprehend. Um, but at a certain point, it's like, well, do you go back for another PhD or do you learn from the people around you? Uh, and that's really sort of what I'm invested in. You know, I love going into the classroom and we just had midterms and my students are so always surprised, always that, you know, one of the options I have on the midterm is tell me about something you want to do for the midterm and let's see if we can make it happen. Because I always find my students, even though they may be undergraduates, they have such life experiences. They have such knowledge that I have no access to or would never even have dreamed of that they bring it into the class. Um, and it's a chance for them to show that expertise and for them to teach me something new. And I, I just love those moments where they do that. And so bringing your, 
your own faith and into the classroom, yeah, in your um, teaching on Islam, is um, is faith something that you address in the classroom as well? It's a really good question. I think when I talk about the idea of faith, I think that faith invariably in fact affects my behavior because it's part of who I am. I don't try to separate a faithful me from an unfaithful me. I'm not sure how that would work. Um, you know, there are these Star Trek episodes where there's a transporter accident and there's the good guy and there's the bad guy that's split up out of that. But I don't think that really works in real life. So, mm -hmm. uh, But I'm also very conscious not to bring my faith into the classroom in the sense that it should be irrelevant that I'm Muslim when I teach about religion or about Islam. So that, you know, we have to distinguish between theology, which is work that I have done and continue to do, but in theological settings, you know, so these truth claims versus the study of religion, which is what I do at Barnard and Columbia and, and uh, Hofstra and Fordham, which is what is it that people believe, why do they believe it, and how does that impact the ways in which they live their lives? Um, so my faith impacts my behavior, I believe, firmly. It should, I'm not going to shy away from that. But my faith doesn't inform the ways in which I approach my scholarship in study of religion, uh, because there are methods that we take very seriously um, that I think we should adhere to. This is part of the inquiry of the university. Um, so I think that's sort of how my religion interacts with what I do in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I do want to um, talk more about your, your research and things, but thinking about this um, in terms of conversations around religion in the U.S. today, uh, one thing that you've said is how there's America is one of the most religiously developed nations in the world, yet we don't have ways, and I'm paraphrasing your yeah. words here, to talk about religion. Right. And um, can you help me, or tell me more about kind of what does it mean to be religiously developed and how can we open up dialogue yeah. around religion? You know, the United States as a developed nation is one of the most religious nations. So if we take, you know, the G8, for example, the United States is the most religious when we look at statistics like church attendance or going to worship services. So as a marker of religiosity, it's one of the most religious. But the two things we're never allowed to talk about in polite company are religion and politics. So we don't have the ability to have a sophisticated conversation uh, really about either one of these topics. Um, and so what we see is a deep polarization in our political life. We saw this most recently in the 2016 presidential election, where you really you had these two Americas and nobody knew what was happening in either America, not because of geographic distance, but because of the inability to invest in common ideals or languages again. In the same way, when we think about religion, uh, we don't have the language to ask uh, what somebody else is doing without framing it as a challenge. And I would argue that's part of two, uh, there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that we don't want to appear to be stupid. Uh, that if I have to ask a question, it means I don't know. And for some reason, we're always conditioned to say, if you don't know, you're stupid. Uh, but again, personally, the greatest gift we have is to admit when we don't know something and want to learn it. But the second issue is that when we ask somebody something about themselves, what they believe, why they act the way they do, it means we're forced to ask that own question to ourselves. And that makes us really uncomfortable. As human beings, we don't like that self-awareness that that entails. And so we think about, uh, for example, um, 
recently uh, President Trump has tried to pass two Muslim bans, so-called Muslim bans. Uh, that's his language. Mm-hmm. Because Muslims are inherently violent in his worldview. And so he wants to block in the first ban Muslims coming from seven countries, in the most recent iteration of the ban Muslims coming from six countries. But these places are also failed states. So are we talking about religion or are we talking about failed states that breeds violence? Um, if he's really worried about Muslims, why isn't Indonesia on that list, which is, in terms of population, the largest Muslim population in the world? Um, if the question is about uh, centers of, of violence and terrorist attacks against America, why isn't Saudi Arabia on that list? The other question that we have to ask, and that comes up in both executive orders, is the question of women's rights. That uh, if you are, if you don't, if you don't believe in women's rights, you shouldn't be allowed into the country. Uh, of course, says the party that women shouldn't have say over their own bodies. You know, and so that irony, I'm sure, is lost on them. But when you look at female heads of state uh, in the Muslim world, almost 50% of the Muslim world has elected a female head of state at either the prime minister or presidential position. That trumps the United States, no pun intended, uh, because we have not yet elected a single female head of state. So by what measure of rights are we going by? And so it's easy to say it's because of the religion and not look at some of these other issues or look think about some of these other definitions as they come into play. And on this, the dissonance that you bring up around, um, well, I see a, the the dissonance in a, in a couple different arenas that you yes. mentioned, but um, let's talk about this, just the facts that you brought up about yep. the more female Muslim heads of state than there are in our own country where we say women have more rights here right. in America. Um, you know, how do we have intelligent conversation or bring up such uncomfortable topics. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if there are easy ways to have these conversations. At this point, it feels like these have become almost tropes. They've become truths in their own selves that we can't necessarily shake. Um, you know, one of the things, obviously, sitting as I do in study of religion at a liberal arts college, is that the experience the exploration of the humanities is really a way to start thinking about these issues more broadly. How do we create more humanities education that gets people to say, I can feel empathy through literature. I can understand why people build the buildings that they do because of the environments that they're in. And I don't, again, I don't think it's accidental that when you look at a place like Wisconsin, where Governor Scott Walker wants to say, let's kill all sorts of funding for anything that isn't job training related. It's because an informed citizenship is a dangerous citizenship. And people in power don't want dangerous citizenship. They want compliant citizenship. They want apprentices who will do work. Um, There's a reason that Donald Trump is proposing in his budget to cut the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. is because he wants to take away the very things that allow us to work together as a nation. Because once we come together as a nation, you can build something new. Now, whether you believe in Trump's ideology or not is irrelevant. Uh, The fact that you think that the study of how we are human and how we can be better humans isn't worth our time as a society means that you don't have much faith in our society. Um, So I think that that sort of engagement is the first place where we have to start. It's not necessarily learning about Islam per se or having these hard facts. It's more importantly about engaging with the human experience across the board 
to understand that the slave narratives are not exceptional, but are representative of what happened in this country to slaves by American citizens. You know, so we tend to treat slave narratives as the the goal, but we forget that no, it's representative of what we did as a nation and how have we come to grips with that. That and and what relationship does that have to something like Black Lives Matter? That it's not about a moment in time, but it is about a history and a trajectory that continues to devalue people. So how do we move beyond that more broadly, I think, is the the more challenging part before us. Mm-hmm. Certainly, and as you say, that it's not just this, you know, one group of people's responsibility. Right. Um, and so with these this current um, government, can you speak a bit about the you know how to I guess rather before getting into how thinking about the religious identity um, of Muslims or even people of faith um, changing kind of pre and post current mm-hmm. government so you know I'm gonna I'm obviously gonna spend a lot of time talking about the Trump administration because there's a new administration but to understand that Obama's administration was good in many ways, but that doesn't mean they were free from any of the defects. It's a matter of degree, not of substance. Um, So that we do talk about, uh, under Obama, a president who, until, you know, fairly recently, uh, had worked to deport the most number uh, of undocumented immigrants in this country of any president, um, who had bombed the most number of Muslim countries of any U.S. president, uh, who had killed the most... Muslim civilians of any U.S. president. Um, Of course, that's quickly changing under the Trump administration. I suspect the eight years of Obama will be surpassed by six months of the Trump administration, uh, at least in terms of bombing campaigns. Um, But I think that... At last, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well... uh, In terms of of how communities of faith have changed is... I don't know if communities of faith have necessarily changed. I think that what's happened is that the extreme discrimination being visited against Muslims and Jews, for example, has brought out extreme acts of generosity. So we saw this when uh, a Jewish cemetery was defaced and defiled, uh, that Muslims raised funds for that experience. Um, And recently when a mosque was vandalized, the Jewish community raised funds to ease that vandalism. And so you see this great goodness coming out. But what I would argue is that that goodness was always there. Having grown up in New York, I've seen it day to day, uh, that it is there. Um, What we're seeing now, again, is just these extreme acts of kindness because there's these extreme acts of hate. And I don't think necessarily that we should be looking at how religious communities have changed, but thinking about what has happened in other communities to make their hate more palatable and acceptable and virulent. Um, and to think then about how all people of goodwill can engage with one another, because I think traditionally there's been a divide in American society between non-religious goodwill actors and religious goodwill actors. Um, And I think what we're seeing now more and more is that the critique that a secular left is offering is exactly the critique that the religious left has been offering for decades in terms of consumerism, capitalism, not building up some of these communities, the risks of globalization. So I think the, the, for me, the question is not how religious communities have changed, but how can we leverage that visibility to create new 
constellations of communities who want to do good together. Do you see um, hope or and action around kind of multicultural coalitions coming together to resist? I, I think that when the first Muslim ban was um, passed uh, on the evening of Friday evening, I think what you saw at the airports was this were these multicultural coalitions coming together. In some cities, you saw dreamers coming out. Uh, you saw Black Lives Matters. You saw lawyers uh, working together with religious figures. In uh, again, in relationships that we would not have imagined previously. I think there is something that many people now recognize is fundamentally wrong in terms of what's happening in this nation. That the ability for us to come together is the best thing is the best response we have right now in this nation to show that it is possible to move beyond traditional lines of separation and say there are common values and a common ethos that we all share and that we need to continue to fight for and engage with. So let's return for a second to this um, inherent understanding that you say the current president has about Islam being um, inherently violent. And to... Um, is this, what do you attribute this understanding to? Or said another way, um, are there misunderstandings about Islam in America? And what do you attribute that to? There are some profound misunderstandings about Islam in America. And this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, Edward Said, who is a former professor here at Columbia in the Complit Department, wrote a book called Covering Islam shortly after the Iranian Revolution of 1979. And he does, he does a long excursus into what, uh, sorry, a long discussion into what's happening in terms of media coverage of Islam post-79 revolution. But I would argue that we need to look back even further, that representations of, of Muslims as the other really goes back to the founding of the nation. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, in his construction of what religious liberty in America looks like, says the true test of whether we have constructed a nation based on religious freedom is if we can have a Muslim president, right? So, I mean, that's part that? of his worldview, but not because he has sympathy for Muslims, but because he can't imagine anything more foreign than a Muslim, right? Um, and there are categories of othering, right? There, there are only five ways to create an other, somebody against who we judge ourselves against. The other is always violent. The other is barbaric and uncivilized. The other is dirty the other has poor gender roles, and the other is superstitious or illogical. And you see these fa same five traits being applied over and over again. How do we talk about Mexican immigrants today? They're rapists, so poor gender roles and violent, right? Uh, 30 years ago, we would have talked about, or 40 years ago, we would have talked about their Catholicism as being illogical or superstitious. We saw this with Kennedy, who was crafted in the same way. In mm -hmm. other words, it's not always racial. Um, we see this being used for black people, right? Hypersexualized. Uh, and violent, you know, Michael Brown was a big lurking demon is how he was described. Um, so this constant dehumanization. So who gets to dehumanize the other? Are the people in power. Um, to say that Muslims are experiencing now what Jews and Catholics experienced before is based on two fallacies. One is that Catholics and Jews have stopped being discriminated against, which I would argue that's not true. But second, that just because it's happened before makes it o it's okay. 
that should be a problem for us as human beings to say that we are going to commit the same crimes over and over and over and over again and assume we'll eventually learn. That is the worst possible way in which to view the world. We've done it, but until we take atonement for it, and this is the religious voice, until we say, I have done this, that I need to make amends for it, that I need to be responsible for it, we can't move beyond it. And so my parents, I was born and bred in New York. My parents came as immigrants. They never owned a slave in this country. Why should I care about reparations? Because the fact of the matter is that I continue to profit off slavery, off the dehumanization of black people in this country. And so reparations is my atonement for recognizing that I am profiting off somebody else's suffering, whether I participated in the literal buying of slaves or not. I'm still engaged in the metaphorical slave trade. By reparations, what do you mean? So there's a... a a movement or uh, an idea most recently engaged with by Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, of the Atlantic. Um, it's probably about 18 months ago he wrote an article called The Case for Reparations where he talked about the systematic theft from black people of their wealth, starting with slavery and moving in through even the post-civil rights era um, and the ways in which profit is made off of disenfranchising black bodies in this country. Uh, so if that profit is in circulation, then those of us who are not disenfranchised by those systems then are, are making a profit off that expropriation of wealth. Um, and so the idea is that there has to be some adjustment made for the black community, whether it's a monetary distribution um, or a deeper restructuring of some of the uh, ways in which we, st we structure society. Um, thank you. Um, your work with Islamicate is to, in in a way, uh, my understanding is to increase um, religious literacy. Yes. So that's the intention of of it, and some of your your other work as well. And I'm wondering if you can give an example of um, one of your current projects with with that that has where you've seen success in yeah you know one of the projects that um i'm most proud of it's it's not an upcoming project it's one that's ongoing right now uh is at the children's museum of manhattan uh there's an exhibit called america to zanzibar muslim cultures near and far and the children's museum of manhattan is on 83rd street between broadway and amsterdam uh it's a children's exhibit it's it's designed to showcase the diversity of what it means to be muslim and what we did there was we took a very strong uh, religious studies approach, study of religion approach, to sort of say what, not what do Muslims believe, but how do Muslims exist in the world. So we don't get into theological notions of who is God or who is Muhammad or what is the Quran. We take these as that they're given for Muslims. And so what does it mean for the way they live their lives? And so you can go in there and you can see the ways in which Muslims travel around the world. Uh, and so, of course, you're met with a camel, sort of that stereotypical image. Mm -hmm. But then you see a dow, and you see a truck, and you see um, uh, no magic carpets. Uh, I think the kids are most disappointed in that. Uh, but you also see people walking on foot, and we talk about ways of transportation. Why would this be any different for a Muslim than it is for you? The, you know, here in the United States, you might ride a horse instead of a camel. But otherwise, would you ride a ship? Would you drive in a truck or a car? And the answer is always yes. 
Now, what that ship looks like may be different. What that truck looks like may be different. But that's because of where they are uh, and the ways in which that's expressed. Uh, within the space of talking about an American Islam, you know, there are two parts of that that I'm really excited about and that the kids and parents both get uh, very interested in. We have a wall of 20 different mosques around New York City, um, and they're just different architectures. So people imagine, when they imagine a mosque, they think of the mosque on 96th uh, Street and 3rd Avenue, which is a purpose-built mosque. It has a dome. It has a minaret. But we also show them the prayer space at LaGuardia Airport and the prayer space that's in an Exxon gas station. And they're like, these are mosques too. And we're like, yeah, this is where people gather to pray. This is a mosque. Uh, and so they, they take that away, you know, very interested uh, to see that diversity. And then we have a little room that's the diversity of American Muslims. And so we have memorabilia donated from the Nation of Islam, from Warth Dean Muhammad's community, from Arab communities and South Asian communities. Um, we have a little library in there that the kids can go and read. And so those sorts of things help kids understand in ways that their parents wouldn't necessarily say, I want to go see this, but it's a children's museum, it's safe, and the kids get to learn in, in great ways. But one of the best experiences, opening weekend, and I'll share these two stories with you. There was a, uh, a reporter who was going around and had asked a non-Muslim family, you know, had a young daughter about three years, two to three years old, said, what do you think of this exhibit? And she said uh, in an accent that I pegged as, as Scottish, uh, although I could be wrong, she said, we've traveled all over the world. We go to children's museums wherever we go. This is by far the best exhibit we've ever seen because our kids are learning about something that they wouldn't otherwise learn about. Great validation. And then I was asking a mother whose young children were playing. There's a, a bazaar. We have a mock bazaar where uh, it goes from Senegalese fashion in Harlem to a fish market from Zanzibar. And uh, I asked the mother, I said, what do your children think of this exhibit? How are they enjoying it? What are they learning? She said, I love this. I said, I couldn't ask for a better experience. And I said, no, why is that? She said, I'm from Zanzibar. My husband's from Senegal. I said, there's no place I can teach them both of our cultures at the wow. same time. And so that sort of thing, mm -hmm. right, tells us about what New York is, but it's also about the world of the future, where we are from all sorts of uh, countries and we are speaking all different languages and coming together in a common experience. So that's really been one of the great success stories in the work that I've done. Thank you for sharing those stories. And it's interesting that it's in a children's museum, too, and thinking about the future. If you could choose for it to go somewhere next, <laughs> where would you <laughs> <laughs> choose? Well, so the exhibit is designed to be a traveling exhibit, uh, and I do know it will be traveling. And so if I tell you where I hope for it to go next, I may just jinx it. So I'm going <laughs> okay. to hold off, but I would love to see it travel around this country. Uh, in big cities and small rural areas, any place that there are children whose parents love them enough to help them learn about the world that they're living in. I wish it would go to all of those places. Me too. Thank you. Um, so I, I want to talk for a minute about the current research project that you're doing and looking at the growing or the role of technology in teaching religion. Um, I say that the growth of technology, but I wonder what aspect of that you're looking into and how the growth of technology is affecting yeah. um, faith and so religion. So I actually um, co-wrote a report uh, with a colleague of mine, Chris Cantwell, uh, called Religion in the Digital Turn, uh, where we looked at the ways in which uh, we use technology in the teaching of study of religion in higher ed. 
Uh, Chris is a public historian and was really interested in the technical aspect. Uh, I'm much more interested in sort of the theoretical implications for our field. Um, and that makes it sound like a very neat division. It wasn't because I'm also interested in the technical side and he's also interested in what it means for our field. But playing to our natural strengths was sort of how that, that broke down. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that, you know, I talk about uh, or I think about with respect to this is that a lot of our premises for the study of religion come out of comparative theology. You know, when you think about universities, uh, the first schools that are often founded are theological schools because of the time. These were, this was the queen of the sciences. Um, and so as it moves to study of religion, it inherits some of the biases from theology uh, in terms of a presumption of what religion is. It needs a scripture. It needs a key figure. It needs a god. Uh, and you find religious traditions being put into this mold. Buddhism, for example, Taoism, Shintoism. Um, do these fit neatly into the categories of what we call religion? Yes, no, maybe. It's, it's complicated. When you have tools that say, well, we can look at a corpus of literature that's not scripture, but is still important for a religious community, does that allow us to expand our definition of what religious, or what a religion is? When you have oral texts that we can now record and analyze, does that allow us to expand our definition of what a religion is? Um, so, and this is a very simplified version, um, but I think that this is an opportunity to really question some of the premises of the field more broadly and thinking about how do we engage with a public. Because again, for me, working in study of religion, I take as true that if we look at a religious community, what they believe is true to them. My job is not to question the truth of what they believe. My job is to understand how that truth affects the way in which they live their lives. Um, And so how does this allow us to bring more people into the conversation that they say, yes, you are representing me. This is, in fact, the truth that I see brought to life. Um, I will say, uh, as a quick aside, on April 13th, I'm giving a talk at Columbia on this topic on religion and the digital turn. Uh, for the Institute of Religion, Culture, and Public Life, uh, and that'll be at 4 p.m. Great. So I want to talk um, a bit more about the um, the current political era. Yeah. Um, so just if you could, in brief, tell a little bit about the current challenges and or um, potentially opportunities that you see for um, people of faith, particularly Muslim, in contemporary society with the political era. You know, you've talked a bit, sharing on the um, different activists and events that you've been involved in with activists. Um, but I'm so I'm curious to hear about current challenges and opportunities you see and whether it's focusing just on Muslim in America or perhaps um, whether it's not fair to just put, yeah. if there's undue responsibility being given to, um, to Muslims to, at this time. So uh, Salman Rushdie, the author, I'm paraphrasing, he has a quote that says, uh, racism is not my problem, it's your problem, I'm simply the victim of it. And I think when we look at Islamophobia, we're seeing a lot of the same attitude that there is something incumbent on the victims of Islamophobia to explain why they shouldn't be victims anymore. Uh, again, and we see this with Black Lives Matter. We get we see this with uh, the North Dakota pipeline, with the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, 
I am no longer interested in apologizing for my humanity. Um, and I have a very strong sense that we're going to see a lot of people now who are going to come out and say, no, you know what? I'm a human being. It's not up to me to prove that I am. It's up to you to prove that I'm not. And what you see is people twisting themselves up in knots to do this. So the founder of Chobani Yogurt mm -hmm. gave work to refugees, gave a donation to refugees. And people said, we're boycotting Chobani because you're supporting refugees. And so in order to prove the Muslim founder of Chobani is not human, you have to be upset that he's helping people who have nothing. And that proves your own humanity. And I think that that sort of logic is deeply disturbing. Mike Huckabee, Governor Mike Huckabee, who, as I understand, claims to be a, a pastor or priest of some sort, at one point said that, imagine you had a bag of peanuts and five of those peanuts were poisoned. Would you risk eating that bag of peanuts? And he was talking about the refugee situation. And I thought to myself, well, isn't that the logic of Pilate? That if amongst these Jews there is even one Messiah, shouldn't we kill them all? Or a Pharaoh, if amongst all these Jews, if one, amongst all these Hebrew children, these Hebrew infants, if there is one who will rise up against me, shouldn't I kill them all? And so when you have somebody who represents a major political party in this country and claims to speak for a religious voice, but that voice is the voice of Pharaoh, is the voice of Pilate, is the voice of oppression, then what logic did he have to use to get there to prove my inhumanity and to prove that he was human? And I, that's the logic that I'm really uncomfortable with. And so I think as, you, as we stand up to say, no, I'm not going to prove my humanity, you have to disprove it, that these people then have to deep either say, well, no, I really can't do that, or really steep themselves in depths of depravity um, that really will become unconscionable to most civil American society. Mm -hmm. And thinking about some family that I have in Texas and um, middle of America who um, hear different stories in the mass media, you know, about just that are stereotypes, plain yeah. stereotypes. Can you give any takeaways or s activities that people could do to fight against or just to avoid stereotypes? Oh, that's such a lovely question. Uh, you know, it's hard to give sort of a blanket statement um, how to avoid stereotypes, but I am, again, a firm believer in the arts. Find a Muslim musician and buy their stuff. You know, I like Yuna. People forget Yuna's Muslim. Lupe Fiasco, Most Deaf. Um, you know, when you look at producers like Swiss Beats or um, Rhymefest, these are Muslim producers as well. Uh, reading stories, reading books, uh, reading comics. You know, we've got great characters like Miss Marvel floating around. Um, we've got great literature like the autobiography of Malcolm X floating around. I mean, there's just so much wonderful, wonderful material out there. Um, whatever art tickles your fancy, find a Muslim who's involved in those arts and engage with them. Uh, I think that's always the easiest and, and best way to do it because it's something you enjoy anyway. So how do you deepen your knowledge within that space? Wonderful. And a final question, if I may, to return to um, the 
the idea of a Muslim president in the U.S. Do yes. you think, <laughs> do you ever see um, a Muslim president in the U.S.? And what's the timeline for this? Well, you know, the question is, is it a Muslim by belief or a Muslim in ethic? Mm-hmm. Because I think very firmly FDR's four freedom speech is a speech that is aligned so closely with Muslim ethics that one could argue that he had this uh, in him already. Obviously, he was not. I'm not making the claim he was Muslim. I want to be very clear. But those ethical statements about need and freedom of conscience and freedom of speech, you know, that this is very much in line with a Muslim ethical worldview. Uh, in terms of actually having a Muslim in the White House, uh, assuming you believe that uh, Obama wasn't Muslim, uh, I don't, uh, although I know it's a, a common belief in America now. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. The fact that we're having a hard time electing a woman uh, when women are more than half of the country's population and Muslims are less than 1% of the country's population, you know, I, let's work to getting a woman elected first. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing your insights and understanding and stories um it's been an honor to have you on the show professor rashid and also look forward to um, hopefully attending the event on april 13th and i'm so glad to know more about your work and hope we can continue this conversation thank you to wrap it up for now thank you again and it's been an honor thank you thank you The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston and is titled Kingdom Stowaway.